if you have any kind of a business that relies on one individual, it's not a business, it, it's a job. So the question here is, how do you make it financially sustainable? If you double the size of the employee base and you double the size of the revenue and your bottom line is the same, I don't call that scaling. You're still scaling, <laughs> but maybe not in the direction you want. How long did it take you to recover from that and say, okay, we're gonna tackle this? Okay, recover mentally? Never. Did I stop and ask myself, why do I want to scale? No. I mean, who doesn't want a bigger company with more employees and more money, in, right? Oh, did we fall flat on our face? We flat. We fell hard. I can sit here and I might seem wise because I have lived through it. But let me tell you, when I was going through it, I wasn't that wise. Welcome to the Go, Go, Grow podcast, where we share practical advice and growth strategies for scaling B2B businesses. My name is Dasha Tishlik, and I'm the founder of StratCraft. My name is Michelle Page, founder of Sales Chasers. Welcome back to Go, Go, Grow. Today's show, we're going to be speaking with author, scientist, and serial entrepreneur, Dr. Charles McCarrick. He's the founder and president of MicroAnt LLC, an antenna design and manufacturing company here in Jacksonville, where we're filming at the studio podcast Suites and also its subsidiary company, Core Composites. He recently wrote and published Lessons My Brothers Taught Me, it's right here, How to Transform Your Personal qualities into a successful business, a story that provides raw, somewhat comedic, very honest <laughs> insights into some of the most difficult times in the company's 20-year journey. And it's also humorously illustrated. So it's like the one of the only business books that has nice illustrations to come along with it. So today we're going to be talking about scaling the team and what that looks like. Charlie, in your book, you introduce a framework called the 4S Transform. Can you talk about what the 4Ss are and how they can be used by business leaders uh, in their growing companies? Sure. Good question and a great place to start. And thank you for having me, by the way. This is my first time in a fancy studio doing a podcast. <laughs> so this is uh, uh, this is uh, really exciting. I came up with the uh, 4S Transform well after I had been running the business. And I was looking back at the various elements of what it took to be a successful business. When I realized what you need to have a successful business is successful people, right? Because mm -hmm. it's the people that are behind the business that uh, bring it to life, that make it happen, make things go. And I broke it down, these these elements, into the so-called four S transforms. Four, because there's four of them. S, because they all begin with the letter S, so it would make it easier to remember. And transform, because the, the idea here is that you're transforming character of individuals into a company, the character of a company. Mm -hmm. The first of the four S's is saleability, and this is a personal trait. Saleability means what value you bring to any interaction, right? And life is all about interactions, and as business is all about transactions. And by bringing value means that people want to interact with you. They want to talk to you. They want to work with you. You exude all of these traits and character things that, that get people excited. Can you, you give us a couple examples of, like, the most common traits that make people want to interact with you? I think people, they see that you're transparent, open, honest, intelligent. Mm -hmm. You're committed to satisfying, uh, providing satisfaction and satisfying their problem. It's, it's really the same thing you look for in a friend, right? Somebody that you can count on, somebody that's going to be faithful and loyal, somebody that's going to help you when the chips are down, and also celebrate, you know, your accomplishments as well. So saleability is really a personal trait, and it's what you essentially emote out to others. Okay. The second of the four S's is sensibility, and this is also a 
character trait, meaning this is pertains to human character. And it's in the opposite direction. These are the things that you draw in from your external environment. Sensibility okay. means a situational awareness of what's taking place. Like you're in a room with a, a, a number of different people. Quickly, you can tell the people that you, who you want to interact with, who the leader is, who is saying intelligent things, who is bringing value. But also, if you're going to be starting a business, you need sensibility as to how you're going to succeed. What's your product? Is it a product that's going to be in demand that people are going to want? How are you going to market it? What's the competition? Who your customer is going to be? So, so these are things that you essentially bring in from situational awareness. So you have to be sort of like curious and, and listeners, what I'm hearing in terms of being able to get that information. That's exactly right. And you, it doesn't hurt to be detail oriented, to pick up this information, pick up more and more data because data uh, you know, successfully assimilated, right? Becomes intelligence, right? And intelligence is how we make our decisions. So how we make good decisions anyway. It, it sounds like the first trait speaks a little bit to, to right brain. That's right. And the second one is certainly left brain. You know, you you are brilliant. You are you are you're hitting your right. I didn't want to get too deep in it, but I, that had crossed my mind before. But I never wanted to explain it that way because yeah. people would look at me cross-eyed and said, "This guy thinks he's a psychologist now." Well, it, it's true that that somebody that is part of a team they really need to have that balanced approach so that they can interact with and relate to the other members of the team. And of course, that means internal as well as external. So I, I love how you've broken that down. Thank you. And the the next, uh, the, the third of the four S transform is sustainability. Now, this is more of a company, you know, a company characteristic, meaning that to be sustainable is essentially you're able to propagate, you're able to move mm -hmm. forward, you're able to stay alive, right? And for a business to be sustainable. That usually means that you've established a product, you've established a, an employee base, a customer base, and you're doing business, right? And you know that you, you have a pretty good sense that you're going to wake up tomorrow and still be able to do business. And that will continue on to the, into the future. So sustainability, of course, is what makes a company a company. Is that a, a purely financial metric? Because we often talk about sustainability in terms of finances, or there's more to it. I've seen many a company that was sustainable that was always in the loss margin. So, I mean, profit helps and it's great. And eventually you want to be there, but you can still be a pretty sustainable business without making a profit. Uh, and, you know, even large companies, they'll post losses in a quarter and maybe another quarter they'll make up for it. So they'll do this kind of a thing. But you would never argue that that company wasn't sustainable over the long term. So, so what's the other piece of what's what's what is it at the core that's making it sustainable? The thing that's making it sustainable is that you have the ability to execute your business plan. Now, let's say that it's me and a lawnmower. OK, and the lawnmower breaks down. That's not a sustainable business. OK, if it's me and two lawnmowers. All right, now I can, you know, it, the business is more sustainable. Now, what if I get sick? It's not a sustainable business. So I have to have at least two lawnmowers, both the machine and the person that's pushing it, right? So sustainability generally means that you have a plan in place, and that plan is probably going to include employees or team members and skills that are overlapping in such a way that it doesn't rely on one individual. If, if you have any kind of a business, that relies on one individual, it's not a business, it, it's a job. 
It's a right? hobby. It's a hobby. <laughs> it's, a, it's a hobby. And some hobbies make money, right? Yeah. And, 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 and they can become businesses uh, more or less. But in reality, it's a job. Sustainability brings you beyond the job. It's sust- sustainability means you have a business that is sustaining and providing a lot of jobs. Let, let me share a real world example here. Okay. So one thing that everyone will get to know about me is I'm a football fan. I love football, any form of football. So when the NFL created, well, when the USFL spun off from the NFL, Mm -hmm. everybody was so excited. I can remember arena football. If you, if you think way back into the, we're not going to say what decade. And then, you know, the USFL has kind of struggled a little bit. And then the XFL came out a couple of years ago. It had a great impact until it didn't. So recently the two have merged. Now there's definitely a demand for football in America. So the appetite is sustainable. The market is sustainable. So the question here is how do you make it financially sustainable? How, how do you continue to attract that a market? So that's a, a sales and marketability sustainability question. And in the competitive market, you know, the USFL has been around, I'm sorry, the uh, NFL has been around for a while. They have an established fan base. The USFL and XFL, which have recently merged. So they're doing that to try and be sustainable. They compete in the spring. So that helps. But if you're not seeing a sustainable path, you've got to adapt. And I'm sure you have seen that in your business and in the businesses you've watched. That's absolutely, absolutely right. And you bring up a really good point. Because why, if you're selling essentially the same product and you're marketing it the same, why would some of these leagues be successful and others not? And ultimately, it's the consumer that decides mm-hmm. what's going to be successful. And, it, it, you know, as they say, you know, if the dog won't eat the dog food, right, you just, you know, it's not going to sell. That's all there is to it. So you can do all the things right in terms of sustainability. But in the end, if you didn't, uh, if you didn't approach it with the sensibility, Right. of making this a success, then you're missing a key ingredient. You yeah. can't just jump into one of these four recipes and say, okay, you have, it's very, it's sequential. One feeds upon the other. It's almost a, a, a cyclic. That's why I call it a transform because together you're going to transform into the success. So obviously some key element was missing there. Mm-hmm. And if you, you can't get someone to like something that they aren't going to like, but if you have sensibility, you should be aware of that ahead of time that exactly. it's not going to succeed. And then look at the analytics under, under everything else, the sensibility, the saleability, you've got it all handled, but there's a fourth <laughs> S. What could that be? The fourth S is scalability, ah. right? And, you know, scalability, you think of the word scale and scale, you think of terms will mean to grow or shrink or to change mm-hmm. in size. And it, the, the operative word there was growth, right? And But I don't necessarily mean growth when I talk about scalability. Scalability can be growth and it can be a benefit of scaling, but uh, there's other ways of scale. I'll give you an example. When we thought that we were growing and growing the business and we had reached an inflection point where we were going to bring on more, more customers and more revenue by adding more employees and but instead we fell flat on our face because we did not have a good sell, a scalability plan. We didn't have a good scalability plan because every plan begins with an objective. Right? Yes. And every objective begins with a, a desire, a need, right? You can't say, 
my objective is simply to earn more money. But why do I want to earn more money? There's got to be more to it than that. For instance, a scalability plan could also be, well, look, I'm going to keep the same employees that I have. I'm mm-hmm. going to keep the same burden and burn rate for the company, yet I'm going to be more efficient. I am going to provide the same quality and the same quantity for half the price. Or you could say, I'm going to increase the quantity without compromising on quality and keeping, maybe maybe the price comes down and I'm going to do that with the same team. That's truly scaling up. If you double the size of the employee base and you double the size of the revenue and your bottom line is the same, I don't call that scaling. I call that just, you know, you know, growing. I, I, I call it, that's more like the viral. Effect, yeah. Right. Or so what happens even more often as you add more people, you, you're, you're, you have other expenses that yes. increase as well. Oh, that's and right. And so you're not necessarily taking advantage of the larger size. You're actually decrecing your margins. Definitely dilute it. That's good In which point. case, yeah. you're, you're scaling down, actually, even <laughs> as you're <laughs> supposedly. You're, you're still scaling, <laughs> but maybe not in the direction you want. Inverse. That's right. Hmm. Well, you know, scalability, you know, I have a lot of favorite words, and that's definitely one of them. Hmm. And this podcast is essentially a coaching podcast to help scale SMBs into the the next level, whatever, however they define that next level. But a lot of our listeners and and viewers, I'm sure are kind of at that. Okay. But am I still an SMB or am I scaling? And I'm sure you've found that in in your company, micro ant. And of course you've founded and, and led other companies as well. So if you could kind of give us an idea of when you saw, I'm not really a, a startup anymore. Mm. I'm a scale up. I have different needs. I have different goals. I need to, I need to change my plan. I need to change the leaders in my company. I now have needs I didn't have. So can, can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. You know, I can sit here and I might seem wise because I have lived through it. But let me tell you, when I was going through it, I wasn't that wise. Right? <laughs> I, mean, I, can, I have the benefit of uh, looking at this in the rearview mirror and being able to analyze it. But at the time, you know, it, it was a bit chaotic. But one of the first things I'll ask somebody if they if they were to say to me, and I've been asked this question many times, how do I start a business? I say, well, now, why is it that you want to start a business? What are you looking to do? What are you looking to accomplish? It's the same thing with scaling up your company or growing your company, almost any decision that you make regarding the company. Why do you want to do it? You know, the why leads to the objective and the object, behind the objective, you know, that is what generates the plan. It's, uh, did I stop and ask myself, why do I want to scale? No. I mean, who doesn't want a bigger company with more employees and more money and, right, and, and, and industry recognition? I always said that we were just, you know, the tail of the tiger. You know, and the industry was the tiger just wagging us anywhere we wanted to go because they were decide they were the ones that were making the decisions how we grew, what products we sell, you know, what markets we went into. And in terms of our first foray into scaling the company, oh, did we fall flat on our face? We flat we fell hard. We had a, a customer come to us with an enormous purchase order for a job that uh, a product that we had developed and we knew that we could produce it and we felt great about the one thing the mistake that we made is that we did not look and see what the use case for this did this customer actually have end users the and the answer was no not really but even more egregious than that this customer didn't have any money 
Now, we didn't find this out until checks started bouncing. So we're off and running, right? We're kicking off, you know, all our vendors and we're taking the money out of our bank account, our personal accounts, and we're, woohoo, we're growing. And what happened was that vendors started saying, okay, we're on 30 net day net terms, time to, you know, make good on these purchases. And we're going to our customers and say, hey, <laughs> I don't have any money. What do you, oh, he no. thought he was going to sell this stuff somewhere down the line and he was going to pay us out of the sales. I mean, yeah. If only, you know, that'd be great if the business worked that way, but you it doesn't work on consignment. No, no. So we became a bank, you know, with unsecured, giving unsecured credit. And so we were in a, a lot of trouble. So that wasn't scalability, but all the elements were there, right? We added a lot of customers. I mean, we, we added a lot of employees. We brought in a, uh, a lot more equipment. We brought in a lot more materials and goods. Right. And had a big we, purchase and, order. And, we had, <laughs> and I was going to say, and on the face of it, we, we, you know, tripled our revenue, right? More than we had done the three years per. So everything was there, but was that scaling? No. All right. So clearly there has to be a plan and you have to understand and you can't base it upon one particular customer or opportunity that comes along. So one of the things I hear you bring up in that falling flat on your face story is that there's a scaling of risk that's going on as you scale your company. And so if you took on a small, for example, customer who didn't pay off, your risk was small. And so the growth maybe was small, but the risk was small. So if things went south, you didn't fall flat on your face. But you, when you grow and you're scaling, your risks also increase because you might be taking on more inventory. You might be taking on bigger customers, more difficult projects. Is that... How do you think about the risk aspect of the scaling then? What, what, do you, what should entrepreneurs be doing to, to reduce the risk even as they're scaling? Well, I hope you have a financial plan in place because you have to consider the, the economies involved. What you said about the risk also scaling, well, the risk is that it's one thing if you're building a hundred of something and your layout is a thousand dollars, okay, a thousand dollars and you have access to it the bank, you know, in, in your own bank account, that's fine. But now you're doing 10 times that much. You need $10,000 to fund this project and you don't have $10,000. Now you have to go out and get a credit or you have yeah. to borrow it. Okay. Now things get a little bit dicey. Who do you get the money from? Can you get it from a bank? Well, the bank is not going to just lend to a company, right? That's with a, an unsecured, uh, don't, you know, debt. So you either have to go to an equity lender or you're going to have to go to venture capitalists or Uncle Joe, right? And so all of these things are risky because at the you know you have the the money is what grease the skids and gets things moving. The risk was never in hiring the right people, building the product, making it successful, delivering it to the customer. The money was being financially viable throughout the entire process and be able to keep your head afloat mm -hmm. until the you know you were able to invoice. So after the initial panic, yes. <laughs> how long did it take you to recover from that and say, okay, we're going to tackle this? Okay. Recover mentally? Never. <laughs> <laughs> well, the <laughs> thing about painful lessons is you do not forget <laughs> them. You do not repeat them. <laughs> re re recover economically. It was about three to six months. We had a lot of other jobs that were going on to, you know, to keep the, the boat afloat. But you know, we, we had all this useless inventory that we had a hold while we, you know, 
while, while we did all this other work to try to pay for it. What we did was we told this customer, and, and in the end, he made commitments that he had to make. And we said, we're not, nothing is leaving this plant until you pay us, right? You want 10 units? We receive payment for 10 units, you get 10 units. Yeah. So it was, as I say, cash and carry, right? So, you know, pay as no net 30, net zero terms. That's uh, what we did this customer until all inventory was gone. Trust but verify. Yeah, trust but verify. <laughs> so it, it, that took about six months to get us a whole again. So talking about scaling, that can mean very different things mm-hmm. to dairy, very different companies. A lot of it's based on industry, market, and like you mentioned, going back to the goals, why are you wanting to scale? So just to kind of put this in context, a lot of companies will say, um, we want to grow our revenue. We want to scale our revenue. Others will define that by headcount. Others will define it by number of locations or geographies. It may be entering new markets. I mean, there's just so many ways to define scaling. But when you decide what that goal is, how do you identify, okay, we need to, of course, now build a new culture. We've got to build a new team. We've got to design the organization we need. We've got to identify the traits of the leaders that we need, where our gaps are and, and what we've got to fill. Can you talk a little bit about some of the, the, the main maybe lessons that you've learned and some of the advice that you have? Yeah, that's, you're making a really good point because you don't simply scale workforce. It's not as if I have three people i'm going to duplicate these three people they all come with individual personalities traits skills and other things that they're going to bring to the business so you have to hire really really carefully carefully for me i wanted a skill i mean not first and foremost because i wanted to have a a, a larger profit or bring more revenue revenue to the bottom line it was that there were other technologies that I wanted to explore. And that was going mm-hmm. to take internal research and development money. And I wanted to be able to, rather than just respond, be re- reactionary to our customers, I wanted to develop products that uh, we knew that there was a demand for and we yeah. would own all the intellectual property and then we could sell out there to, to multiple customers. And in, in order to do that internal research and development, as you point out, we needed skills that we didn't have on board. So that meant we had to hire people that ordinarily would command a very high salary that we weren't going to be able to afford as a small fledgling business. And so to bring in these heavy hitters, both at the management level, as well as, you know, on the teams and the technology and quality assurance, we knew that we had to put all these departments together and that was going to be expensive. And said in order to have a whole company that was truly sustainable, that was operating on a plan and everybody following the same processes, we had to get ourselves to a point where we were at a size. And I think you said 10 to 20 million. That is the sweet spot for many, many uh, companies, small companies starting up. In that 10 to $20 range, that's when we sensed that we were ready to do this internal research and development. We were ready to have, you know, a, our CRM system, and MRP system and our quality systems all in place. And with those, once you have the systems in place, those define the different positions that you need on the team and the various mm-hmm. leaders and the execution of that. That was the basis of a plan that uh, formed our objective to scale. Now, scale, right, the, the objective was to, to get money, but behind that was, I wanted to do this internal research and development. And so all these other things had to happen at the same time. 
So in your book, you have a couple different chapters. We're going to smoosh them together, but you have something on ineffective leadership. Mm. You also have something called company CPR, Mm. which is a different story of falling flat on your face, (laughs) as I understand it. And then you also have one about succession planning. And it sounds like there's sort of a root cause, effect, and then solutions. So can you talk through that, that time in your company where a total reorganization was needed? You needed to change the team up. And how did you know that that was a root cause of your problem? What were the signs and what were the results of, of doing a reorg? Okay. The, I have a chapter that's called Company CPR. I mm-hmm. think that's what you're referring to. That is why I wrote the book. The, that is central and core to the book. And I wrote all the chapters around it. Oh. And the reason I had I started there because COVID had hit in, the, in, in 2019. I had uh, a lot of free time on my hands. There was a lot of people who had to work remotely. And I was doing a lot of things at home. I was sewing up bags. I was, you know, and I, and I said, you know, I, I was musing about all the problems that the company had and how we succeeded and got through them. And even during COVID, we were doing pretty good. And I said, yeah, I wonder if there's some formula. I wonder if this, you know, I, how did this all happen? And I started writing this and it turned into a chapter and I started, and next thing I know, it turned into a manuscript and it became a book. So it uh, began with the company C, uh, CPR, meaning that I was trying to bring the company back to life after we had done, uh, made some major missteps. And the major missteps we made weren't technology-wise, weren't economic. They were in people that we had hired. Now, when I was the only person in the company, I was the CEO. I was the janitor. You know, I was everything. Right? <laughs> you, you, you have to do all the, the roles. Of, yeah. And I, I always felt that my, my greatest value to the company was as a technologist as the chief scientist. So I was always looking for people to take on those other roles that I held. And one of them was president, right? Uh, CEO of the company. Somebody was going to run the entire company. And uh, so I went through a, a number of, of, of different starts. I would bring people in. It just didn't seem right. And as the company grew, I always found myself doing their job on top mm-hmm. of it. all. But finally, we hired somebody just prior to 2019, 2017, somewhere around there, who had on paper all the skills. And if you sat down and interviewed this person, you would agree this person had all the skills and charisma and everything that you would want in the present. He was an engineer, had a background in companies, large and small, and was a technologist, understood the the, the culture fairly well, we thought. The thing is, you you always lead with a carrot, not the stick, right? And everybody will tell you you lead with the carrot, right, and not mm-hmm. the stick. This guy led with the stick. He no, he he took the carrot and he uses a stick. I mean, he, <laughs> <laughs> nice guy, and I don't want to disparage him at all. But oh my gosh, did the company go to hell in a handbasket under the the two years that we appointed him? president. And, uh, and if I can just interrupt, I think what you describe in the book is that you found yourself hiding from him under a table as okay. the owner of the company. I, I was going to say, I said, we don't have to get into all that, but it is in the book. So what do you think? <laughs> uh, yes, that, that, that's true. He came marching into my office and he was always dragging people. His entire day was spent in meetings and you avoided him because you're going to spend three to four hours in a meeting when you could be doing something else. And wow. I'm working on a project, you know, and I'm still, back then, I'm still in the the path to getting the, the, the satisfying uh, what we're develop, delivering to the customer. And I hear him because he stamps, you know, around like a general, <laughs> like, like Napoleon. I heard him coming. So I just ducked under the desk. And I and I hear him talking to the, 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 the guy out there. I said, where's Charlie? He's in his office. So I'm hiding. 
and he's stamping around, he's snorting, and, <laughs> and he's looking around. I said, oh, please don't look under the desk. Right. <laughs> that would be awkward. <laughs> no, the awkward part was the reality I had after I said, you know something? I'm underneath this desk. I'm hiding. And he works for me. Said, I'm the problem. Right? I'm, you know, you know, so I said, okay, we, get, we have to do a reset here. And when I talked to different people and I realized how unhappy they were and how the culture had done this, I realized that the company was never so happy is that when I was the president, I don't know whatever, maybe I'm a good, you know, you know, I'm a nice guy to get along with. I, I make coffee for people. I don't know what it is, but I understood people really, really well. So I think that I had the, the leadership that this, that my company Microant needed is at that time. So what I did was, you know, we had, you know, we, we had some heart to heart talks and eventually this person left. And we had talked about bringing in another person. I said, as president to replace him. I said, before we do that, I am going to fix everything so that this person isn't coming into chaos. So I said, I have to find out what's wrong. Why is everybody down? Why are they complaining? Why are they pointing fingers at each other? And I met with every employee of the company. I sat oh, down wow. with each and every one of those 76 people. I know this because I, I asked them what the favorite colors were. And I went home and I sold them a bag based on the two colors. So I had a meeting with them. I gave them the bag and then we had a talk. Oh, wow. And so that, I was doing the math, 76 people, 76, how long? This is going to take a year to do. But actually, I, I, it only took, took about two months. And I met with everybody and, and some of those people just outright crying. And those were the most successful ones because they were, I, I learned something. I had There's no empathy idea. there. There's relationship. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I learned just how tightly things were wound up and how they had called this person a bully and, you know, how they were always, you know, the so-called blame game. And I said, ah, so there was that leadership. But with the one of the residual things of the leadership is because people were always acting in a, in a self-preserving mode. Mm-hmm. They started creating silos. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to participate in any kind of process or, you know, they want to do, and they started defining their own job description. They defined other people's jobs. And, and so I had to break through all of that. I had to reestablish, I, I called quality assurance in. We, we went through all the processes and the planning all over again. I made sure that we had this within the management. We had a culture of being processed and planning oriented, no more silos. We had you know, like you we were talking really about a CRM system. Rather than this person and that person and this other individual having a little spreadsheet where they kept information that was never shared, it had to go into a common database where everybody had access to it, everybody saw it, and everybody could use it. Um, Because then, right, it becomes a company resource and not an individual resource. And those silos, you got to break them down and you got to break them down in a hurry. So those are the main things that. It's not as if I made any promises to people or I patted them on the back or any of that stuff. We just, I just listened, found the things that were wrong, broke down the silos, put processes in place. Because everybody wants to know at the end of the day they've done something valuable and that uh, they're appreciated. And that's what we made sure happened. So I had um, two thoughts from that. First of all, uh, you used a word that Dasha and I use constantly, and that's a silo. And silos can be very dangerous for companies mm-hmm. for that very reason. They have their own, their own resources, their own knowledge, tribal knowledge. They have their own often goals and strategies. But in your case, 
because of the culture, it wasn't so much a silo as a as a foxhole. <laughs> and well, that's just as bad. Because I was hiding in the foxhole, you're right. But, but, but that's just as bad because then you are equally either on the offensive or the defensive, you're never collaborating. No, you 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 hit the nail right on the head. If you're not collaborating, then you're not performing as a team. As a team. Yeah. If you're not performing as a team, what kind of culture right. can you possibly have? And if you don't have culture, you don't have a company. I said, a business, right? And you have a company. A business is uh, the interactions that you do. Those could be, you know, listed down on paper, right, in a spreadsheet. But a company is a living, breathing, sustainable thing that has a culture, and it's the human factor that makes that turns a business into a culture and brings life to it. So I'd never heard of the foxhole before, but if I had, I it just put, popped up. I would have put that in the book because you're <laughs> right. It wasn't that easy. You, know, you see this. Oh, look at the silo. It's filled with corn, right? And we're keeping it away from the cows. But you, a, a foxhole, right? Those are hidden. Those are meant to be. These silos were hidden, and you didn't. You had to go, you know, like an Easter egg hunt and say, "Okay, where is this silo?" <laughs> and and you would find them. You wanted to find the silo. Everybody had them. They're collecting. Their own information is a, because it was a mechanism for self-preservation. Well, I know Dasha has a great question for you, but I had one other thought that I wanted to share. My favorite color is purple. I like bags too. <laughs> <laughs> well, good to know. So we, the systems and the silo thing. I, I also wanted to add a comment. So I was reading a report recently about knowledge workers, and um, it talks about you know how people spend like ten to twenty percent of their time searching for information within their own company. Right. And so if you have siloed information that's siphoned off into different departments in a small company, people are going to be doing that. That shouldn't be happening in a small company where people can come and talk to each other and where, you know, everybody, the, the systems are, you know, you're, you're using a relatively small number of systems relative to maybe like a 10,000 person company where, of course, it's it's hard to even fathom right. um, how you unite everybody exactly the same way. But you mentioned that you've also now implemented a CRM system. And this is something Michelle and I talk a lot on the podcast about because both of us truly believe that this is undervalued by many companies and also that it should be one of the first things you implement in your company because you're going to be doing business. You're going to be trying to find customers. So you should have that information stored in some way that isn't an Excel spreadsheet. Can you talk about how you decided to implement it and what's changed in your business as a result, just as a little practical tip for the people listening? Because we hammer this all the time. So we want to, we want to see if we're justified. Okay. I think in the book, I said, one of the biggest mistakes I made early on is that I did not pay attention to accounting. I didn't have a good accounting system. Um, let me, I, I should expand on that. I don't mean accounting just uh, in terms of doing the, the, the financial spreadsheets for the IRS. I'm talking about accounting of all data, right, within the company and, and, mm-hmm. you know, and making sure that you have the data in the proper place and available to everybody else. And the key data that you have is those that involve uh, customers and marketing, right, mm-hmm. the bread and butter, all right, and that's your CRM system. And you want to know who your customers are and you want to know what you can sell to them, what you have sold to them, because that's that's the template for how you're going to uh, do business development, how you're going to grow the company. You're not going to do it without that. That's for sure. An MRP system, you know, materials resource, resource planning, every article within the confines of the company, you should know where it is. You should know what the access to it is, and you know you should know what its value is. The last thing you want is a bunch of inventory, either work in progress or other equipment, 
piling up and you do your, you do your books and you find out you have two or $3 million in inert you know, materials. I mean, that's money that you, know, that you need to get out of the door. And the other, the other database that, of course, is the accounting end of it, but that's usually connected to the MRP system, is whatever the technology or whatever it is that, that is proprietary to the company that allows you to sell your product, whatever. You know, we're a technology company in communications, so that would be all of the you know, engineering data. If, if I can add on to that, you need to have an audit, a recordable audit, and somebody responsible for owning it, of what technology you you have throughout the entire company, who has access to it, how many licenses you have, how many pieces of hardware you have. And when somebody leaves the company, you need to track that they lose access. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly right. Especially if you want to be a company that's going to work with Department of Defense contractors, right? You have to have healthcare. And healthcare, right? You're going to have to have these measures in place, especially security measures which we do. And if you have a, uh, a good quality assurance manager and better yet, a department in place, then you're going to be, that you're going to have the necessary certifications that will make sure that not only that you're delivering a product of quality to the customer, but that you're following all these other practices, that you have mm-hmm. plans and processes in place that you're following. And those processes and planning is going to include asset tracking which could be computers, keys, software, exactly. and, and the like, right? You want to know where all of these things are. And you said, you made a comment earlier about, you know, the worst thing in a small company is looking for where something is. We, you know, in my company, in our company, we have, you know, people who follow process and planning to the letter. And I will ask a person a question, but I, if I ask them a question, I'm asking them a question for information that I know that is in their Realm that they should have. I won't ask an engineer for a question, an accounting question. I won't go to accounting question and ask them, you know, about some business development question. You know, so I know that which person I can go to. And there, in my company, there are three people I can go to and get everything that any kind of information that I need. Whether it's, hey, I brought my propellers in, you know, from my boat and I set them down. I don't know where they are. Some <laughs> I know the person who's going to know where they are, or if I'm going to say. Uh, you know, hey, we we sent out this this product to this one customer. Have they evaluated yet? If not, you know, when will they evaluate it? If so, what is the feedback? And I know which person I can go to and get those answers to. So you have to have you have to have all of that data and information at at, at your fingertips, and it can't be ephemeral, right? It has to be in a database because somebody else could take my place or that person's place or that person's place. But the data, right, has to be consistent and has like. If my entire business development business team leaves, what happens? What's, well, the thing is we still have the CRM system there, right? And anybody who's qualified in marketing or sales or in business development will go right in there right. and know what to do. And we'll marry that up to the technology. Well, Charlie, that's fantastic. And thank you for coming on our show. I just want to let our uh, listeners know that you can find links to Charlie's book and his blog, as well as his companies in our list, in our show notes. I do want to go back to one small little detail. When you talked about scaling and because you're, you're a technology-based company, you have that specific level of knowledge that you need to add. Someone with specific expertise, when you need to, to scale, you need to add them to your leadership team. And you mentioned that sometimes that knowledge can come at a price. Yes. And a lot of our, our, our audience may not 
have that price times however many individuals with expertise they need. Dasha, as many of you have, have realized and may already know, she has worked with a lot of technical industry, biomedical, satellite, defense, um, any oh, type pharmaceutical. of pharmaceutical, any type of good to market that, that is highly technical. When they have those special needs and they, they know their science, they know their technology, they don't necessarily know strategy and commercialization and they can't afford a full-time strategist. That's what a fractional expert could possibly be the solution to your problems. Did you ever bring in anyone as a subject matter expert on a less than full-time basis, Charlie? Yes, we did. We did not call it fractional at the time, but that's exactly what they were doing. They would come in as a, as a consultant or an advisor, um, even, even in, in, in intern, turn, uh, you know, to, to some degree is, could be considered fractional because they are, uh, they are taking a fraction of a particular problem, right, which they're working on, they're dedicated to, and they're solving. To your point, you're right. We had a, this person eventually became our CEO. There was no way we could afford this person's salary. And to this day, he's probably making half of what he was earning before he joined the company. And there was, you know, we weren't going to be able to pay him. So it's simple. He would be an advisor. We would compensate him. Maybe he would work for a fraction of the time, say maybe three months out of the 12-month calendar year. Mm -hmm. And uh, we could get the benefit of that skills for when we needed it and that expertise, but without having to bring on you know, somebody of, that would command that kind of salary. So, yes, we bring in more and more that we'll be working with our fractional people. And, you know, this could be a two or three month assignment, but sometimes it, it could be, a, you know, a, a two hour session and you yes. can learn a lot from it. So yeah. I'm, a, I'm a big proponent of, of this, this, I would say, this fractional new wave and this push, especially for small companies. You know, it, it's, it's a resource that I really wish that had been available to me about 20 years ago. And one thing I want to point out, and I'm, I'm actually just discussing this with one of my clients who's growing and, and they're a startup. You know, sometimes you need a person to be executing a plan daily, you know, picking up the phone, moving the box, shipping the thing, doing the design. Sometimes you need to set up a system, for example, for the first time. And maybe the person who's really good at doing the work every single day, who's maybe wearing ton hats, maybe they're not the best person to design a whole brand new system, right? And you only need to do that design phase once. And so that's a great opportunity to bring in somebody. So if you're setting up your supply chain for the first time, you might want a person who has a lot of experience, has been in a management position at a bunch of different companies. But if you have somebody who then runs that system, you don't necessarily need that same level of design capability. They can just be an advisor that they, the, the person that executes the plan, you know, has has contact information for and when things arise that they need advising for. And that way you're also able to develop your internal talent while for special occasions, you might need help with the design or that right. executive uh, level position. So when I got more involved in the fractional world, and of course the clients I work with, it could be on that couple hour consultation. It could be a, a short-term project. It could be a fractional role, whatever that client needs. Uh, but when I first started uh, really interacting with and networking with other fractionals, what I heard a lot was, well, how can a fractional CFO who's only with our company 10 hours a week, how can they possibly be effective? I need that CFO 40 hours a week. Okay. In that 40 hours that you have a full-time CFO, how many 
unnecessary meetings are they in? Well, there's that, but <laughs> I should just answer the question. Yeah. A person, that person will come in and set up a system for yeah. so that somebody who maybe they don't have that experience, maybe they don't command that kind of a salary, maybe they're at an entry level, can run the system. Because it's much yeah. easier to run a system than to try to synthesize it and, and then try to bring this all together and stitch it together as part of the company. Yeah. But what you said about, and you talked about supply chain, that's exactly what we did. Mm-hmm. We had somebody come in who knew about, they had been retired, they weren't were looking for another job, but they were, they had a extensive background in setting up a uh, supply chain in vendor management. Uh, and they came on and they reestablished that process and quality came in and documented it so they would have repeatability. And then you know, then we were able to get entry-level people to almost, yeah. you know, to just a good uh, and articulate on the phone to be able to call and order and manage, you know, and manage our vendors. So that's how you do it, right? Yeah. They set up the system. And it makes perfect sense on the other side as well, because the people who are really good at setting up systems, who have the lots of experience, they don't necessarily want to be doing the daily calling either. So they right. don't want to be in a role that's where half their day is bookkeeping and the other half is being a CFO. They actually want to spend more time being strategic, financially setting up systems, coaching the next level of financial leadership. So And helping um, you achieve your long-term financial strategy not preparing your quarterly taxes. <laughs> That's exactly right. Okay. Well, we've, we've had so much information. I, I appreciate you introducing me to Charlie. It's been wonderful meeting you. It was my pleasure. This is wonderful. I, I love this studio. Studio like podcast suites. Uh, Here, it's in Jacksonville. Town center area. Yeah. Wonderful place. Yeah. Love it. Okay. Well, thanks guys. It was a real Thank pleasure. You. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. Go Go Grow is found across all major podcast platforms as well as on YouTube. We'll see you on the next episode. And also please join us for our office hours. You'll find details in our show notes.